In today's episode of the Iman Wire podcast. Misogyny is not only about how women feel, it's about how are we holding up the sunnah of the Prophet and how are we really carrying forth our, our deen. Where we're not seeing each other as antagonists or adversaries, but allies. You know, Allah Ta'ala tells us in the Quran that this is the model of gender interaction between men and women. And I would say that Islam is a more radical feminism than most of the feminisms we have today because Islam also elevated what we would call today feminine qualities and made them important human qualities. Women are on these programs because there's this recognition that each speaker is able to bring something unique and to add value to the program and to be of service and to learn and to exchange and to learn from each other. Islamic scholarship, it's also about how you live. And it's difficult for young people today to really recognize that they have to have some serious inner change and that that's a foundational part of the path to knowledge. Welcome to another episode of Iman Wire uh, podcast uh, with um, our distinguished guests, uh, Sheikha and uh, Ansa Tamra Gray uh, from Rabata Foundation and Ustada Zainab Ansari from uh, Taysir Seminary. Uh, we are very pleased to have you with us. Uh, my name is Ghaydar Bishmaf uh, from Al Medina, and uh, with me is Salam Arif. Uh, welcome, uh, Ustada Zainab and Ansi Tamara. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Barakallah fikum. So uh, delving in uh, right away to the um, uh, topic of the day, uh, basically, uh, we are, um, you know, hosting two of the um, prominent scholars, uh, women scholars in uh, the U.S. and in the Western uh, kind of, um, you know, society, Muslim society. And uh, we are very honored, of course, by this uh, participation of yours. Uh, but in general, uh, this topic is about uh, female scholars and female scholarship. And um, in the beginning, uh, a lot has been has been thought of, you know, and uh, we hear about, uh, you know, certain periods uh, where uh, contributions were made by uh, women scholars, particularly in the early uh, stages of Islam. But is employing a romantic or a revisionist uh, narrative uh, at the service uh, to the challenges that we have in the present day uh, in terms of the religious education or in terms of training of Muslim women? Uh, or is it something else? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. May I, may I defer to Ansi Tamara? It's such an honor to be on um, this program with her. You know, she's one of my first teachers, so I'd like to defer to her. <laughs> well, we can both share our... Uh, we've come at this from very different uh, experiences and even just different generations. And mashallah, you were able to start at such a young age. I really find this interesting, this question of, is it does it serve us to romanticize a, our history? And I think, I don't think that we are romanticizing it. I suppose we are a little bit when we speak only about some of the great early female scholars. Last summer, in a, for, a, for an educational project, one of the things we did is try to pick one prominent female scholar from each of the 15 centuries that Islam has been here on this earth. And it was an exercise in just fascinating fascinating delving into our history and finding many more women than I could feature. We were only doing one a century. I don't think it's romanticizing to recognize that. However, certainly it hasn't been easy in general for women historically to strive for leadership positions in any field, not just in Islamic scholarship. I would venture to say that in many areas and geographical areas and, and historical times, it was easier for women, to, Muslim women, to strive for leadership in the Islamic, the sphere of Islamic scholarship than it was in any other sphere. So I don't what do you think, Zainab? What do you think about that? You know, Ansa Tamara, I mean, I, 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 first of all, that was a really, really awesome project that Rabata undertook um, last year, kind of juxtaposing um, uh, students of knowledge and, and women teachers today with our sort of um, our forebears from the past. You know, I, I do think that some of the overall 
literature on Muslim women and women in Islam does tend to sort of, sort of, um, I guess, hark back to this this glorious past. But I would agree with you. I'm saying I don't think that it we're. I don't think that we're romanticizing the past. I mean, I think that there's been a pretty frank conversation about, um, you know, some of the disadvantages that women might have even faced in the past. I mean, I think there have been very candid conversations about what some people would term as unfavorable views of women in some of the classical texts. I think we've been very frank about that. Um, I, I do think that, you know, as somebody who studied history, I find a great deal of inspiration in, in reaching back to the to the past and not just sort of on a theoretical level, but just practically speaking, it's been interesting to look at women in, in past societies to see how they kind of negotiated and and balanced, if you want to use that term, these different roles and responsibilities they had as students, as students, as scholars, as mothers, as wives. I think that when you dispense with the lessons imparted by history, I think that you kind of kind of you you can sort of end up with historical amnesia with a myopia, which I think is really embodied very frighteningly in in these various extremist groups and operations. So I think that we we I think to to sort of hark back to those historical examples, I think is very critical today. Yeah, and if I can also add to that, I, I do think what we have done is romanticize what it means to be a woman in our history and in our textbooks and in our, in our, when I say textbook, I mean the types of books that we teach in our weekend schools and Islamic studies departments, or at least Islamic studies within our Islamic schools. And what I mean by that is that we've decided somewhere along the line that the ideal Muslim woman is a flat character, meaning that she's two dimensional. She doesn't have the full depth of personhood that every actual woman and man uh, does have. And so we present the ideal woman as the perfect wife and a perfect mother without really any understanding even of the value of those roles. And what I mean there is that on one hand, we've copied the Western denigration of motherhood and uh, wifehood in that we haven't elevated it in society and recognized the many skills and the, the energy and the help that it needs in order to be successful. And yet at the same time, we want to sort of romanticize this idea of womanhood as though that is the only place that is valuable for women to be. Meaning that if a woman does not have children if she can't or her husband can't or she doesn't get married for whatever reason she often can't doesn't fit in society and i don't think that scholarship should be seen as something instead of this flat and pretend ideal but rather it should be part and parcel of what it means to be to be a woman and to be a Muslim woman and to be one who is contributing to our communities and societies as the early women around the Prophet and in the generations following always did and always saw that as part of their of their full person personhood, personage or personhood. Right. I, you know, at the time where I had it, there was a halaqa that I was participating and I led part of it the other day and I was Reflecting on the example of the Prophet wasallam and how I felt that he didn't really, that subhanAllah, he nurtured his wife's potential and their individuality. He didn't try to curtail it or repress it. And what I find, I, I think back to the, the, the question from, mashallah, our very kind um, moderator here at Iman Wire, you know, the, this idea of over-romanticizing, I think the literature in general on Muslim women, I think, has been on a certain level, I do find it sort of, it does over-idealize, it does generalize. I mean, I, I grew up with books on the ideal Muslim woman. I remember um, a few years back, um, someone approached me to organize a class literally on the ideal Muslim woman. And I really kind of balked at that because I felt that, okay, what are you saying here? That if our lives don't match up or measure up to this ideal, then where do we fall on the spectrum? So um, I think we do need to get away from sometimes those very over-theoretical generalizations of the of Muslim women and kind of really, in my opinion, kind of focus more on the full spectrum, the lived experience of women. Oh, absolutely. And I think also we need to be really critical and self-reflective, maybe not self-reflective as much as community reflective, but both are certainly important, 
in how we define it. We seem to do a lot of self-congratulation about how well Muslims treat women, how we honor women, how we hold women up. But yet, in, a, in the actuality of that experience, it rarely is happening in a, in a manner of true respect and, and true following of the Sunnah of the Prophet So I think also there's a lot to, to think deeply and, and a lot of work to do, back to that question of, of um, well, I, did, I guess I maybe the question wasn't specifically asked, but the related question to what are we going to do and what is, our, what is the opportunity that's there is, what is the work that needs to be done about moving forward? And I think one place is this place of just really being critical. And by critical, I don't mean, I want to be careful of the word. I don't mean being critical in a negative sense, but rather critical, think, critically thinking and reflective thinking about who we are, where we are as individuals and as communities. And that's actually what I wanted to, uh, you know, uh, allude to. You know, uh, it's not just romanticizing; it's kind of thinking about it in a revisionist way, uh, or thinking that any, um, you know, uh, woman scholar is necessarily a mujaddida or uh, somewhat uh, rethinking through feminist lens, uh, you know, a certain kind of uh, paradigm of uh, Islamic discipline or any other discipline, uh, what have you. So, do you think that uh, there is some sort of um, notion, uh, you know, that's presented or maybe kind of implied whenever there's uh, a talk about uh, women scholars, at least, you know, in the uh, post, uh, you know, kind of social media slash, um, you know, the open source, uh, everything that's going on in the Muslim world? I want to make sure I understand the question, um, Sidi Ghaidar. So are you saying that, um, that there are certain assumptions that we're bringing to this conversation that that the female scholar is going to sort of carry the mantle of being of sort of tajdeed? Is that their assumptions that we're bringing to the conversation? Not necessarily. I mean, uh, I'm trying to kind of allude to, yes, in a sense, uh, but, you know, I wanted to, you know, ask uh, whether being critical of some sort, like Ansi Tamra mentioned, uh, is somewhat, uh, you know, um, rethinking uh, the norm, especially in the over-patriarchal, uh, you know, um, kind of practice of, of, of Islam in our communities. I, since you're sort of referring to something that I said, let me, when I say, when I talk about being critical and self-reflective, I mean self-reflective and critical about how we are interacting with our community today and how much of our tradition have we either walked away from or taken on in a, in, in a sort of blind obedience, which is not the methodology of our early scholars, rather than looking at the tradition in the context of where we are, always recognizing the importance of holding on to our communities and helping our communities reach, or I wanted to say reach a higher level of faith, but really today we have to talk about our communities holding on to faith. And also the responsibility of reaching out and the Dawa responsibility, all of that is wrapped up in how we need to be self-reflective. And it's not about being revisionist to me. It's about holding on to those methodologies and, and walking forth with them. You know, and for me, you know, thank you, Auntie Tamara, for, for me to um, just responding to this question about what does it, does, what does it mean to be critical? I, I think that, you know, this is, again, speaking from my own personal experience, we, we sort of, I do find myself as a, as a woman who teaches and, and, uh, and speaks in public that sometimes there is a fine line that you walk between sort of introspection and, and, and critique. And um, there's a fine line that you walk between being able to apply you know, thinking well of the tradition and the motivations of our scholars and acknowledging that there are some problematic things sometimes that are part of the tradition. This is, this is, this is, I think a very, a very delicate balance. And I think one of the challenges that I've encountered is, is what, what are the appropriate methodological and theoretical tools to bring to bear you know, on this process of navigating the tradition, because on the one hand, you know, especially when you talk about Muslim women within academia, there is a tendency to sort of go in the direction of um, of, of secular liberalism, right? And then, then on the other hand, 
you know, when you're in more traditional settings, quote unquote, uh, there is this idea of, you know, where you can't be critical at all. You know, I mean, that, that the tradition is kind of reified in a very, in very kind of glowing terms. So for me, this has been kind of a kind of a sort of a, a, a delicate balance, um, if you will. It's, it's a little bit of a balancing act sometimes. I, I think it's a, it is a balancing act. And I think it's a very important balancing act that not only Saza Zainab and I need to stand in this space, but also we need our male scholars to stand with us in this space and have the important discussions. I had a talk the other day with an imam, and we were talking about his mosque and his struggles to get the community to come to the mosque. And he wanted my sort of thinking about the the mosque space and my opinions. I, I signed that Isna letter about uh, having an open mosque and the, the prophetic mosque and such. And so in that discussion, and it was a long one, I'm not going to take your time on that long discussion, but the three pieces that I mentioned to her, I think to him, I think are very important here which are that my concerns about our mosque today come from a three-pillared uh, way of thinking. And one is the concept of dawah, dawah and that very important responsibility that we have. Uh, secondly, it's a fuqhi issue, which we always have to look broadly at our fuqh, not just simply at uh, rulings that stand by themselves, but at the broad picture. And thirdly, is this concept of where we are, what, what is our context? What is our historical and geographical context today? And I don't, I don't think, I'm not of the kind that would say that, oh, we're in a new time, so Islam changes. Astaghfirullah, no, certainly not. However, while rooting ourselves in rulings of Islam, we can approach this time in a way so that we can be successful inheritors of the Prophet ﷺ. And I think that's where we have to be. I couldn't agree more with, with you, Ustaz Zainab, in this concept that it's a line that we have to walk. And it's an important one. And it's certainly one that, I, as you do, I walk it every day. And I walk it with the people around me as well, the, the the women around me as well, because they're wondering and concerned. And sometimes those misogynist statements that we hear can be hurtful if people hear them out of context. And I, I have people close to me that have read things on their own and then gotten angry with early scholars. And I really, we ha we do have to talk about these things more, but at the same time, we have to remember that we can't project or this is my advice that I give people. We can't, just as we can't project 2016 on any era six, 700 years ago, in the same way, we have to recognize that we are in 2016 as we seek to apply the very basic and important principles of Islamic thought and Islamic law. I couldn't agree more. So we talked about the ideal Muslim woman that uh, the society is trying to mold us into. And uh, right now my heart is throbbing just uh, with the presence of two honorable women uh, like you, Ustada and um, um, Anse. And, and mashallah, two amazing ladies who were able to break that mold and uh, show us the true Islamic uh, female scholarship. And mashallah, I mean, I've been following both of your work and I've, I've noticed that mashallah, both of you traveled a lot to, uh, acquire that knowledge and, uh, especially to Syria. I, that's where I'm from. And, um, we want to hear, hear more about the challenges that you personally faced, uh, when you were trying to achieve the scholarship and what, what you think the challenges in the modern day are for women, Muslim women, to uh, acquire knowledge and reach uh, um, Islamic scholarship. Inshallah, Ansa Tamar, if you'll just let me start, because I have to say that Ansa Tamar is like one of the pioneers who paved the way for me and um, some of the other um, you know, young American Muslim women who traveled to Damascus. 
in the, during the time that we traveled to Syria. I mean, we we benefited from the fact that Antitamra went ahead of us and kind of forged that path and dedicated herself to to scholarship and to and to and to pers- seeking sacred knowledge. So that when we arrived in Damascus, Subhanallah, it was amazing. We already had in place there was already an entire network of of, of women to teach us and uh, mentor us. So. Um, you know, I that was something that I'll always remember with a great deal of fondness and just awe and gratitude about Damascus. That there was already this system in place, which was which we were the direct sort of beneficiaries of. Uh, and and you were always a wonderful student, mashallah. <laughs> Thank you, Auntie. <laughs> I was uh, Subhanallah. I I I was bad. <laughs> subhanallah. I could have been a much better student. I just look back and kind of cringe at sort of the yeah. Subhanallah. I, I didn't always have the, the the sense of adab and appreciation. I wish I'd had for Anta Tamra. I was I was I was very young. Let me just say that in my defense. So um, Subhanallah. I kind of now have the benefit of hindsight. So. Well. I I remember nothing but beautiful adab and mashallah you are the a, a pillar of adab now mashallah alayki and and speaking about that word adab and you asked the cha- the question about challenges and I in my own personal my own personal journey I had just really typical challenges nothing really very exciting to talk about the challenges of balance really I I tell a funny story a funny story about buying bread one morning at 6.30 in the morning. But that story is based on that I used to leave really early to do tajweed before my children would wake up so that I could go and, and practice and see my teacher and all of that and then get back home, get the kids dressed, get them off to school, and then oftentimes go to work. So I I had the, the basic challenges of uh, any other woman, really, that except for that I had a very supportive family structure. My husband and my in-laws were God, were and are a godsend. They are amazing, blessed, blessed people who always support, not just supported me, supported feels like a weak word here, but encouraged, encouraged and uh, stood by me and, and uh, dreamed bigger dreams than even I could dream for myself, which I have to say is really saying something with a capital S because I am a, I'm all about dreaming up new ideas and, and thinking about new things. But as far as the challenges of today, I think that learning the topic is not so difficult. Just being a devoted student, deciding to study, pick up a book, and preferably work with the teacher is not an impossibility for anyone. But we're faced with two really serious challenges today as uh, women and men, and then one, I think, that's specific to women. And the the first serious challenge is that we have to be careful of understanding Islamic scholarship as only an academic science. It's also about how you live. And that's why I said I wanted to pick up on that word adab. One of the signs of Ustazah Zainab's great learning is her great Adab and her her commitment to this path and commitment to this work. And that shows that she wasn't only a student of knowledge, but a student of Islam. And that is a challenge today to communicate that to a global society that is very concerned with themselves in a way that is different. It's 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 intense. It's intense. And it's difficult for young people today to really recognize that they have to have some serious inner change and inner work, and that that's a, a serious and important and foundational part of the path to knowledge. And the second piece that is uh, dangerous, I, I said for women, but I, I'm going to take that back and say it would be dangerous for anyone, but I do think that women often fall prey to it most often. And that is the danger of of the male-female relationship if the when the sheikh or the imam or the teacher is a man and the young woman is a student, there's a, a often an emotional tie that grows. And that is normal because we're trying to build people, not just books. We're not writing a book in someone's head, but we're building a human being and therefore the heart becomes involved. But the 
the imam or the sheikh or the teacher is the power, the person in power here. And so he needs to be very careful that he doesn't misconstrue this and communicate it to the young student in any way outside of just pure classroom interactions. Mixed gender learning is, is, uh, has, uh, is fraught with danger. I, that's why I, I really encourage young women to find female teachers when they can. And that's why one of my missions in life is to build a, uh, a, a horde of female scholars and teachers who can, who can be there for our young women and our older women, our grandmothers and our, our youngest girls to look up to and go to and be able to develop deep, rich emotional relationships of growth without any danger of families breaking up or confused hearts or confused intentions. Oh, may Allah, inshallah, enable you for that. I mean. And, and if I may, I'd like to, there are a couple of things that, um, that I'd like to say, just inspired by Ansi's remarks. Um, I really think that when it comes to challenges, the challenges that we face as women, students and and scholars is that I honestly saw the biggest obstacle for me when I was studying because that was before I'd started a family was was actually my own self like my own nefs it was being able to to sort of um it was being able to sort of being able to hold that mirror up and really see my deficiencies and my faults and my weaknesses I think the adab piece is so critical because the student male or female is only going to be able to be successful in his or her studies to the extent that they're really, really, really ready and willing to do that, to do that hard work of really, really dealing with the nefs and, and the, and the discipline of, uh, of getting up and worshiping and, and, and main, maintaining sort of respect, um, for one's teacher. Cause this is something that I explained to our students in the seminary today that there is, even though we kind of sort of we chafe at this as West, as Westerners. There is a bit of a hierarchical relationship there between the student and the teacher. And I think that, and I think, you know, sort of being able to, to, to come in and be receptive to the teacher and kind of emptying your cup. I mean, that for me, that was one of the, the biggest challenges. And I think that remains one of the biggest challenges today to students, male or female. And, you know, I'm very grateful, frankly, that I was able to go and sit with Ansa Tamra and my other teachers in Syria in a pre-social media age. I think this, uh, I think the era of social media that we find ourselves in today where, you know, it, it, where honestly people are kind of, they're going to Wikipedia and so on, um, has, has, I think poses a certain, a unique set of challenges for, for teachers of the Islamic sciences today. Well, actually, uh, in terms of uh, that interaction uh, that uh, you mentioned, Anse, about the um, uh, learning uh, chain, especially, um, you know, when it comes to a male scholar, uh, you know, teaching uh, women, uh, I wanted to kind of reverse it uh, because I feel that there is a certain, uh, you know, touch of womanhood uh, when it comes to teaching also the discipline. Uh, and that brings me to the point of uh, uh, some, uh, you know, women scholars maybe not feeling very comfortable speaking uh, in front of a mixed audience. Um, is that a barrier of some sort? Because, you know, that same uh, line of discipline sometimes exudes a certain spirituality when it comes from uh, a woman uh, scholar, uh, you know, being spoken in a certain emotional manner, being communicated, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you will, uh, in a motherly or sisterly fashion, where I, as a male recipient, you know, can also, you know, learn a lot, you know, from uh, such, uh, you know, uh, manner. And at the same time, uh, there's much to be uh lost, you know, if you will, um, when it comes to uh, that kind of, um, you know, um, you know, lack of, uh, you know, participation from some of the women scholars. Is this a perceived, uh, you know, um, kind of um, barrier? Is there such a thing as uh, a lot of women uh, scholars not maybe preferring to speak in front of mixed audience and, or teaching uh, male students? Well, I can begin to respond to that. The, um, the, the uh, experience of teaching in any kind of teaching is a, no, I'm going to back that up and say there are two different experiences of teaching. 
there is an academic. I'm teaching. I stand in the classroom and I teach someone something. And then there is the, the uh, I am sitting with you as my student and teaching you and bringing you up. Most of the speaker invitations in the United States, or globally even, are really about that first. They're about that academic uh, speaking, which is not not that. It's not a traditional way of teaching. It just is not a traditional way of teaching. And so it hasn't been really, I don't think, embraced by, by traditional women scholars. I personally, if I can just speak in, in a sort of a vulnerable way, have struggled with my own feelings about it and noted that I feel comfortable and okay in some mixed uh, audiences because they want to learn. And then other times I feel like I'm a spectacle, like men have come just to sort of find out who, who is this person that is going to speak. Or when I start speaking, they're just um, not really taking me seriously. And so I've had different experiences that have informed my way of per- my personal feeling about it. I agree with you that there is that we have to find a way to bridge this gap. I do think that it's important that we listen to one another. And I do think it's important that women like Ustaza Zainab, myself and others, that the message that we are taught, our voices, let's, let's put it this way, our voices, it is important for, for a wider public to hear them. And traditionally, we've had our Imam Shafari, one of his most important teachers was Nafisa Atahira of Egypt. So we, we know that this was a, uh, a tradition. But again, it gets back to adab and making sure that it is all, uh, because the, the impact when you speak, when I speak, there's an impact, how it affects me and my own personal growth. And so if that impact is going to be so devastatingly exhausting, I'm not going to be encouraged to do it again. I'm not going to find benefit in it. And so I, I feel maybe I'm speaking a little bit in circles here. I'm sort of thinking out loud with you about where we are struggling with this. What do you think, Saza Zainab? How are you? How do you feel about it? And what is your, you're younger than me. So maybe your experiences have been better or maybe more negative. I don't know. Well, you know, and to Tamara, one thing that's really interesting is that, um, you know, when I was in Damascus, obviously my interaction with, um, with, with men, whether it was teachers or students of knowledge was, was very limited. And, um, and, and, and there was honestly, there was, um, outside of the school that we went to, I mean, our preference was always to study with you and other female scholars, you know, and once I came back to the United States, um, you know, it just simply became the case that when I went to university that in my, in the, in my department, the, the majority of my professors and mentors were men. And um, so I kind of had to, I found myself sort of having to make that shift, having to make that adjustment. Um, and in terms of, okay, I was, I was really in an exclusively, really all female environment in Damascus and I'm in this co-educational setting back here in the United States. You know, I've been very fortunate in the sense that I've always had teachers, um, and I'm talking about my male teachers, whether within the Islamic tradition or outside of that, alhamdulillah, always very, very uh, respectable and respectful people, people who've really encouraged me and supported me. And um, and also one thing that's really interesting is that when I came back to the United States, I found myself involved not just, were really before I even began kind of teaching within the community and on site, I was involved in online teaching and, and volunteering um, and again, uh, this was largely um, within the context of working with um, male scholars who, again, subhanAllah, are really, really supportive. And, uh, you know, they encouraged me to teach on this online platform that kind of translated to actually working on the ground with people. Uh, they felt very strongly that um, that given my experience in, in Syria, they actually felt very strongly that I should actually be kind of working in more quote unquote mixed settings. So it was really interesting. Um, you know, and, and I did, I had, I have, you know, by and large, whether I work with organizers of programs, whether I work with shuyukh, whether I work with people in the audience, by and large, alhamdulillah, my interactions have been very supportive, very positive. There's been the rare sort of occasion where um, maybe there was a, a male scholar who felt that I shouldn't be, 
I kind of really shouldn't be participating um, in that mixed setting. I, I, I have received um, some messages along the way, and even from people in the audience who felt like, okay, maybe you should just be talking to the women. Um, and there have been even women who have felt that way. And I honestly, I respect women who want to work in women-only spaces because that's a space I came out of in Damascus. I completely respect that because I think there is a need to have education for women by women and that sometimes we kind of need that space where we can open up more and sometimes that really kind of only happens in that single gender setting but one of the things that really honestly motivated me and say was to actually to, to work in mixed settings so to speak is because I found myself doing a lot of interfaith uh, work. I found myself going out and speaking um, to different audiences about Islam and Muslims. So I had to reach a certain comfort level dealing with people in that setting. And I, I didn't want to be in this environment where, okay, I can be comfortable um, because the men here are not Muslim. But then as soon as I go into an environment where they're Muslim, then all of a sudden I'm not comfortable anymore. I didn't want that disconnect. So that's why I kind of trained myself to be able to function in the interfaith setting, in the Muslim setting, in the single gender setting, in the mixed setting, because I found that as long as I adhere to the adab that my teachers have imparted to me, inshallah, I'll be fine. So. You make an excellent point, an excellent point. And, and that, that's part of my part, you know, I've only been back here now for four and a half years, so. And my first year was a shock. <laughs> and, and that first year also, I really didn't believe I was staying. I thought I was going to be able to go back after a year and you know, all, everything was going to be rosy. Uh, so it, it has, I, I really, I've experienced a lot of that myself. And I've experienced also the necessity of, of doing community outreach work and really of helping the community here that maybe it's part of being a minority as well, that we've just got to, there just aren't enough of us to go around or something, but um, yeah, I agree. I agree, and I and I've, I see what I've seen that experience and that in, inter, in interfaith work as well. And I've ha also had some really excellent experiences working in mixed uh, gendered uh, spaces in the United States. And those that I've had those positive experiences with, I'm always willing to go back and re-experience that. But I have been reticent and hesitant and, and stepping slowly. But again, I've only been back for four and a half years, so. So, Anse and Estada, do you find um, that men actually object to you speaking uh, in public in a mixed space? Uh, and on what basis? Also, uh, what about misogyny experiences that you've had in the past? All right, Anse, should I go first or do you want to start? Go right ahead. <laughs> okay, um, so Sister Salam, I th thank you so much. That's a that that that's a question that I think it, it's a little bit of a sensitive one, but I think that we should we should discuss it. Alhamdulillah. I mean, by and large, I've been really very um, pleasantly surprised at the willingness of um, program and and retreat and conference organizers to accommodate women scholars and teachers, as well as. Um, the receptivity of men in the audience. I mean, I there is, um, if I may make a plug for the wonderful Pearls of the Quran conference where, subhanAllah, it was really gratifying to see young brothers in the audience who just actually wanted to sort of just um, talk and, and have this dialogue. And they were very respectful. And I was really gratified to see that. And I didn't feel, you know, I mean, sometimes I, I have, you know, some, some I have kind of talked um I've addressed sometimes the, the the issue of you know is it tokenism when there's a woman there and I, I don't I think we've moved away from that I don't think it's tokenism I think that women are on these programs because Subhanallah I mean there's this recognition that each speaker is able to bring something unique and to add value inshallah to the program and to be of service inshallah to the people who've come to listen and to learn and to exchange and to learn from each other um you know there there have been instances where so again by and large my experience has been positive i mean there have been instances where you know and i and i i felt this more keenly um, at a program, I'm not going to say where or when, but there was a program that I participated in where I was the only woman teaching. And um, one of the male scholars who came on later to speak said in a very pointed way that he felt that women who are in public should be in naqab. And I felt that very keenly because I was the only woman there. So I know he was talking about me. And um, I felt that that would have been a comment maybe better directed and 
to me in private, as opposed to saying in front of all the people assembled there that, you know, that, that female teachers ought to be behind a screen or, in, or wearing niqab. Um, and, I, and, I, and I obviously understand that there are certain fiqhi positions that are very valid in terms of women um, wearing, wearing the face cover or face veil. But I didn't think that it was particularly appropriate, given the fact that I was the only woman teacher there. And you know, and so subhanAllah, so, you know, these things, these things do come up here and there. I have had experiences, um, and again, comparatively rare, but there have been a couple experiences where maybe a brother in the audience who came from a more sort of uh, traditional mindset, so to speak, would say, traditional kind of more in a more cultural way would say, well, maybe the women speakers should be in the back of the room um, or, um or there have been a there have been experiences of you know where later on I've had both men and women come to me afterwards and kind of challenge me to say provide the dalil provide the evidence for why it's permissible for women women to speak in public, which to me is a very puzzling question uh, to begin with um, because I mean if if I think if we that vociferously object to seeing women speak in public, well we'd have to really curtail our our, our involvement in many aspects of the society here so. Those are just some of the things, Sister Salam, that come to mind. So yeah, so I'll I I will uh, I have in the last four and a half years of my um, working in the United States and and globally a little bit, I have sir I have experienced misogyny. I, no one has ever told me personally you have to get off the stage or or anything like that. Although I have been. Um, invited in and, and then suddenly disinvited from uh, speaking engagements, even though I had gone through quite an effort to change my schedule. Uh, I've had uh, comments, microaggressions, um, and most recently in one of, during one of my trips, and I will like Sazza Zainab, I'm not going to mention where I was or who I was with, but I was really treated. Re- I was the guest and invited speaker, and the whole event was supposed to be held in a mosque. And the people who invited me were not part of the mosque; they were using the mosque. And um, the people, the the board of the mosque, I guess, or someone who was in charge. I don't know, if really in charge, or just in quotes, but consistently kept kicking me out of places where I was supposed to be speaking. And then so the whole event would have to move to another space. And then finally, really didn't even want me to pray Fajr in the main mosque space, but uh, uh, then agreed that I could as long as all the other women that were with me didn't. It was really hurtful and offensive. And, um, I was really very upset about it actually. And that was recently. So it, it was really frustrating because he wasn't speaking to me. I didn't even give me an opportunity to speak to him as a scholar to someone who is a community member and someone who has background in Islamic sciences. I, I have a reason for what I'm doing. I have a reason for, uh, the reason I'm praying in the main space where uh, they had other people of the mosque had said that this was acceptable. And so it was really very frustrating. And probably I've heard enough stories of misogyny in the past couple of years to last me a lifetime. I'd rather not hear anymore and just only hear about the good stuff of which there is certainly plenty of it. But I think really what we don't understand is that the misogyny of space is very is really affecting our ability to hang on to the women in our communities and then their children. It's also affecting our ability to do dawah. My rule is: Can I bring my mother to this mosque? Will she res- be feel respected here? And if a mosque has a space for women that is separate from the men, you can't even see the imam except for through a screen. There, are, I have questions about that, but also the very often it's not as well cared for, smells bad. That's an architectural statement that says you are not as important in this space. The money that goes into creating the main mosque and beautiful calligraphic and other decor is often can, it's not even considered that 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 needs to be seen by women, and that's a message. Muslim and 
artists for years made these beautiful uh, uh, arabesque designs in mosques in order to help the worshippers reach khashua. And so when we separate women and push them off into other spaces, what we're really telling them is that you're not important here. And when we tell them you're not important here, they stop coming. And when women stop coming, their children don't come. And when their children don't come, we end up in this, in a state that like we are in today where we have a serious problem in our community with the mosque attendance. Absolutely. And et cetera, et cetera. So misogyny is not only about how women feel. It's about how are we holding up the sunnah of the Prophet and how are we really carrying forth our our deen in our spaces and in our in our communities and in our lives. Well, in, in very short, uh, you know, kind of uh, in a very short response, if you will, uh, would you be able to give us like, you know, kind of one, two, three really quick of what we can do as a community, maybe as men uh, and uh, like uh, to, to kind of defend or step up in the community mosque or in other spaces? Um, it, what can we do uh, as women as well uh, to um, kind of uh, address this in a very positive and constructive way. And uh, I'm going to jump uh, to a different uh, question uh, later. That's why I'm going to shield myself with this <laughs> as, a, as some sort of, a, you know, uh, something that will protect me from the emotions of the listeners. <laughs> oh, I have uh, that I can hop in with if you, if you don't mind. No problem. Uh, I, I would say uh, number one thing is go into your mosque space. And if you have a separate space for women and women are not allowed in the main space, change it, just change it. And if we have women that are going to argue about that, because that is one of the problems that we're facing women that are used to one way and they're not, they don't really want the other way, allow them to have that second space, but open up the mosque to everyone so that women can begin to experience what it feels like to be in the main mosque, to be spoken to as though they are there and to be part of the chutzpah, to be part of the community experience. And it'll be men that will, will especially if the boards are fully men and all that, that we, we need our male allies and we need the men in the mosque to help us uh, reclaim that prophetic mosque. So that'd be number one. The second thing I would say is really recognize the full personhood of the women in your lives, whether they're your mothers, your sisters, your wife, your daughters, and don't just encourage them to take a halaqa or a class here and there, but really encourage them to delve deeply into this path of learning and growth and help them to get in a space where they're in a curriculum program where it's not just, oh, I'm taking a class here or a class here, preferably with a teacher, someone who's guiding their way walking them along this road and helping them become spiritually empowered and then community empowered. And really they'll be really valuable members uh, of the community. And I think third, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go to you because those are the two that just jumped out at me and you can go ahead and then I'll, by the time you're done, I'll thought of my third. And I think Anta Tamara, I like what you're saying about male allies. I mean, that's really critical. Um, you know, that's why I really love the community where I live in. Um, I'm in Knoxville, and uh, in Tennessee. And Subhanallah, um, the 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 sort of being able to rely on the support of brothers in the community who really advocate for women to have prominent roles, whether it's as teachers or scholars or board members here. I mean, we've got, you know, Mashallah, you know, we've got women who um, are really active on the boards of our, our various organizations and that's made a world of difference and there's there's sort of um, a conscious effort made by uh, the brothers in the community here to, to to ensure that women are able to sort of step into these roles um, and just to give you an example there was um, so the the masjid here um, under the um, auspices of the Muslim community of Knoxville, um, you know, partnered with the seminary, Taysir Seminary, where I teach. And I was actually invited to teach um, a day-long seminar on Imam al-Ghazali right in the main musalla of the masjid. I mean, that for me 
was subhanAllah. I mean, that was, that was, that's an experience that frankly I've not had in, in, in other cities necessarily. So to be invited to, 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 to teach in the main musallah of the masjid and, you know, when it was time to pray, the women had the option of actually remaining in the main musallah to pray, or they could actually go back to the women's musallah. Um, you know, so so having um, men who are really kind of forward thinking and sort of more egalitarian in their approach, I think, is really really important. Um, so that's one that's one one piece there that that it's really important to have, um, you know, to have sort of this this ethic. Uh, and spirit of collaboration and cooperation between men and women in the community where we're not seeing each other as antagonists or adversaries, but allies, right? You know, Allah Ta'ala tells us in the Quran that this is the model of gender interaction between men and women, between the believing men and women as awliya, supporters and defenders one of another. So that's the first, that's the first thing. And, and, and for me, the second thing is that when men see when when whether it's men in leadership positions or just men who are sort sort of um lay members of the community so to speak that if you see something that's unfair or unjust you know to be able to 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 point that out and to speak out and to speak up um and then another thing just on a really practical level you know for those who kind of organize events and programs to to really sort of pay close attention make sure that the resources for men and women are similar that the spaces as Anta Tamara is saying that the spaces that women occupy these spaces are clean and, and well and well maintained and also for those who organize programs to make sure that the courtesies extended to male scholars are also extended to female scholars as well. These things are all very helpful. Yes, I think the as the, the English expression goes, the devil is in the details. The Really, there's a lot of truth in that, in, in its meaning, which is that when the details are not right, when it comes to women in the mosque and women in our communities and men helping women, in those when, when men ignore the details... That's when we feel disempowered very often. Like what Isaza Zainab just said now about making sure that how the male scholars are treated is, is the same as, as women. That's something that quite often is not happening. Quite often we find that the, that men are receiving a certain honorarium, for example, or women and women are not, or men are, are, uh, being greeted with a dinner and brought over here and the women are not. And those might sound like really silly things and things of this dunya and, oh, she's religious. She shouldn't care about those things. But in the end, it's really not about whether it's of this dunya or not. It's about establishing a foundation of respect and adab for all of our scholars, whether men or women, older or younger, and all of our teachers and those who are those who have had a hand in, in helping us grow, or who we wish will have a hand in helping us grow. Well, Barakallah, I, mean, I wanted to, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, switch the gear uh, uh, quickly, and uh, with the time left that we have, um, you know, on the reactionary uh, kind of, um, you know, um, you know. Uh, things that have been taking place lately and especially in the past few years with the very widespread uh, kind of utilization of social media where all these stories of misogyny of uh, of uh, you know patriarchal way of you know managing our spaces are uh, you know becoming um, kind of vivid to the wide audience in the muslim community and outside I wanted to ask you about uh, the um, kind of reaction or the assimilation to other uh, kind of uh, uh, methods of or, or methodologies of thought, uh, particularly uh, the New Day, um, you know, modern day uh, feminism and its role. Uh, in reinterpreting uh, Islam uh, or find, uh, you know, and, and how we can possibly uh, find our balance between, uh, you know, uh, this philosophy or this reaction to maybe the global way of, uh, you know, how, you know, it's a man's world, uh, you know, uh, as, as the song says, and now uh, we're having this uh, a feminist kind of wave uh, kind of pushing back. And therefore, I wanted to ask you about this way of uh, presenting, uh, you know, Islam, you know, by 
very few uh, female, uh, you know, speakers. Uh, some of them may not be scholars, uh, so to speak. Uh, so, for instance, we have the no uh, all male panels movement, uh, if you will. We also have uh, some uh, of the uh, women, uh, you know, being. Uh, uh, Put on positions to speak on, you know, national stages, um, and they have a very high influence beyond their qualifications, and they're sometimes put to speak on Islamic discipline, uh, you know, uh, you know, topics that uh, may not be necessarily uh, their, um, you know, uh, cup of tea. But then, uh, you know, uh, you see. A certain danger maybe in that, uh, you know, or you don't, you know. Uh, and again, uh, I recognize here that I'm the hamal uh, uh, that's going to be <laughs> sacrificed in asking this question. So uh, what do you think about that? And forgive me for the itala. I don't, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, not only is there nothing wrong with the question, I don't think it's an important question. It's something that is... Uh, very much in the forefront of my mind. And, and the first thing I want to say about this is that the word feminism in the Muslim community has one meaning. And yet the word feminism has a number of actual theories and ideas and ways of thinking about what feminism actually is. And so the first thing we have to do is not, we have to just stop being afraid of this word as though it's true that there was and is an imperialist sort of feminism that has tried to enter into our Muslim communities globally and strip us of our religion and our faith, hijab and all sorts of other pieces of our of our religion. That is that is true, and there there's truth in that. But that doesn't mean that the word feminism in and of itself is a dirty word, or that anyone who speaks in the defense of women or to women's rights and equity and issues of equality and spiritual equality or social equality, that uh, that that woman is somehow, as someone in March 2012 once said, a feminazi. Astaghfirullah. Um, this it's a it's a word that is a it is a it's a word of sociology of politics. It's an important word because it helps us think about where are we sociologically today regarding women. One of the things I like to say, and you might say that I like to say it because I, it's sort of a shocking sentence, but I like to say that Islam is the first feminism because feminism doesn't own a meaning. And if I define feminism as the recognition of the equality, uh, spiritual equality of women before God, men and women before God, and the importance of equitable social norms and functions in the society and the the rights of women to contribute to community, then Islam certainly is the first feminism. And I would say that Islam is a more radical feminism than most of the feminisms we have today because the because Islam didn't <laughs> Islam also elevated what we would call today feminine qualities and made them important human qualities. Whereas in Western culture today, we, there's a tendency to elevate what are coded as masculine qualities and denigrate what are coded as feminine qualities, which is not the way of Islam, our early Islam and the way of our Prophet Islam. So the first thing I want to say is I don't think we need to be afraid of the word feminism. Now, on the other hand, you are referring to some movements that are coming out of academics who have been schooled in Western academia. And in being schooled in Western academia, they are coming at Islam from a the lens of, we could call it second wave feminism or even third wave feminism when we're talking about patriarchy. And when they're, so when you're coming to Islam through any lens, there's going to be a problem. We need to, we need to have Islam in our hand. And as we have these lenses that we, these theories, because I love theory. I think it's fascinating. I think it's candy for the brain. I just love theory. I, but as I, whenever I look at theory, I never look at theory and then think, oh, does Islam measure up to this? That was the problem of the Mu'tazila. Instead, I look at theory and I say, this is, look at this human made thought. It's fascinating. 
this is really cool. I like this. This is interesting. Hmm. What what is it? How what does Islam have to say about this? What might I see in Islam of this? But I start with Islam. I don't start with the theory. And so I don't. The and the problem in in much of academia, of course, is that academia by definition is not a a space where religion is taken seriously or faith is taken seriously. It's a space of critical theory and a space where all things are held as myth and uh, the development of Western uh, humanities and what we call social sciences. I mean, that's not something that's been around forever, this concept of a social science and that we can somehow study human behavior with quantitative knowledge and know the capital K, how people feel and are going to react. All of that to me is, is interesting and fun to read. Like I said, candy for the brain, but it's not law to me. It's all theory. So that being said, when you're talking about speakers being invited and speaking in front of Muslim audiences and being asked questions or giving a platform to speak about Islam, this is really not the fault of the speaker, although traditionally, I suppose we could say that she should say, well, I don't feel qualified to answer that. But I think we have the same problem with men, given the same platform and perhaps even more platforms where they're being elevated as a person who has a say in something and then actually what they say is damaging in one way or another. And so I think it's a problem in our community as far as we have a celebrity problem, a celebrity issue. And so who qualifies as celebrity by having that charisma or those good looks or that ability to speak then wins that platform because they get the people in. And we all want people to come to our events because we want to fundraise or or we want to sell tickets or whatever it is. So we need some introspection and some reflections to be sure to at least, at the very least, balance our events. And I think we can learn from some of the event creators out there who are doing a fantastic job in creating positive events that also bring forth voices that speak to the issue they ask them to speak about. And all different issues are important. It doesn't always have to be an Islamic scholar, but we can talk to think to we can speak to our specialty without being tempted to be pulled out of that space. I don't know. What do you think, Sazazina? Subhanallah, MC. I have to say, just <laughs> mashallah, barakallah, fiki. Your your uh, thoughts on the on the matter are so comprehensive. I'm not really sure, you know, how much I can add. You know, I I've actually, to be honest, I've kind of decreased. Um, you know, to the question of social media and some of these, some of these sort of uh, these various hashtags, you know, uh, that that have arisen, um, sort of hashtag type feminism or feminist activism. I've actually sort of reduced my my use of social media because my frustration, Anse, has been that I just kind of see people talking past each other as opposed to talking to each other. And, you know, so you have these kind of opposing camps that have arisen. Um, I remember uh, uh, this, I guess this was a few years ago. Um, there was, um, there was a, a, a teacher or, or a preacher associated with a, with, with, with a particular sort of institution. And he made some, um, made some rather unfortunate comments. I think it was in March um, concerning women's history month. And, one of the things that was so interesting about not just the comments that he made, which were, um, they were unfortunate, but it was just sort of the the response and how something that was really just someone's, I think, rather thoughtless or careless use of social media ended up creating sort of a firestorm and you had people in opposing camps and everybody is kind of like staking out his or her position and you know, just the, the language that people um, were using with each other, it was rude, it was coarse, and, and you know, emotions um, were sort of, you know, the, people were just kind of, like, the entire sort of episode was basically being filtered through the the lens of just, like, overreaction and emotionalism, and, and that, to me, was really troubling because, and I think that it's, it's, that is one of the obstacles, I think, in the way of sort of having a really healthy and constructive dialogue. I mean, I think we do need to talk about feminism. I think we need to talk about it in a way that's measured and thoughtful and considered and not reactionary. I think there's a lot of benefit, quite honestly, that we can derive from certain feminist perspectives. And, um, you know, so at the same time, though, I will say that I think when you, when we, 
looking at the overall level of, of discourse in the Muslim community, I think, honestly, it's just a reflection of the larger sort of issue with the coarseness of political discourse today. I mean, you know, look at this. SubhanAllah, talk about civility. I mean, we have someone who basically was elected to the highest office in the land and his his whole thing was to kind of dispense with civility and look how that's become something that subhanAllah has been almost in a way lauded. So I think what we need to be really careful about as a community is let's not sort of um, lose ourselves and um, and emulate and imitate those in the larger larger society who have completely kind of lost their sense of uh, moderation and, and and their moral compass. I think that for me is really 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 important. And I and again I have to keep coming back to this. Let's look at the adab of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, even when he was dealing with those with whom he most ardently disagreed. He was never disagreeable sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Uh, I hope, inshallah, we benefit from your um, uh, wisdom, alhamdulillah, and uh, from uh, the valuable participation of Ansi Tamra Gray. So uh, on behalf of uh, everyone who's listening uh, and on behalf of our staff here at Iman Wire, uh, I really want to say Jazakillah Khair and Jazakillah Khair Ansi Tamra as well uh, for this valuable time and participation. This concludes our um, uh, podcast for the day uh, with Iman Wire with both Ansi say Tamara Gray and Ustad Zainab Ansari. Thank you very much for listening and please check out uh, imanwire.com uh, for uh, all sorts of uh, different uh, articles and podcasts on uh, several uh, contemporary issues uh, with the Muslim community and the community at large. Thank you very much again. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.